crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author. And in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. Thomas Williams insisted he was innocent. I swear to God I didn't do it, he said. You can't prove it. You've got nothing on me. The townsfolk didn't believe him. Neither did the media. A reporter with the Asbury Park Press in New Jersey wrote, quote, Williams' stolid attitude only strengthens the belief that he is the murderer, the iron nerve that he is known to possess, aiding him in maintaining his stand of innocence. In other words, the story read... It's clear Williams is a killer because he gets mad when you call him a killer. Quote, cornered in lie after lie, he declares his story to be the truth. End quote. His story was that he never laid a hand on little Marie Smith, a 10-year-old so small for her age that she looked more like seven. Marie had disappeared November 9th, 1910, sparking days of search parties in agony for her parents. Then, about five days later, a florist wandered into the woods and found what looked like nothing more than a bundle of rags. As he stepped closer, he realized it was the missing girl. Marie's skirt was raised, her body exposed, and the pretty blue ribbon she tied in her hair that morning had been tied around her neck. She'd also been bashed in the head with such force that her skull was cracked in two places. To some Asbury Park residents, this was as open and shut a case as they come. Williams, a black man, had attacked and killed Marie, a white girl. Dozens formed a mob armed with axes, sledgehammers, and crowbars, ready to become Williams' judge, jury, and executioner before he'd even been charged. What they didn't know is that the case against Williams would fall apart. And at the same time, it launched the career of one of history's most revered detectives, whose cat-and-mouse search for the real killer would become the stuff of legends. At the time of Marie Smith's murder, Thomas Williams was about 45 years old. He'd been pretty well-built in his youth, earning him the nickname Black Diamond as an amateur boxer. In 1910, he was one of those guys you saw too often at the local pub, but who at least seemed to be a pleasant drunk. He came from Virginia, had a couple of convictions for robbery. You know, once they found him with some watches he'd stolen on a train and arrested him. Another time for public drunkenness. This is author Alex Tresniowski, who's written a new book about the case called The Rope, a true story of murder, heroism, and the dawn of the NAACP. I read an advanced copy for this episode. Tresniowski says Williams was... Not a horrible character, but he was sort of an itinerant handyman around Asbury Park. You know, you need a tree cut, you'd call him, or a house painted, or just somebody to round up your animals for you at night. And, you know, sometimes he'd get paid in booze. One of the people in town who regularly hired him for odd jobs was a woman named Della Jackson. 
The papers would later note that Jackson's first husband had been black, too, and her daughter was mixed. Jackson was aunt to Marie Smith's mother, Nora, making the older woman Marie's great-aunt. Williams lived in a rented room in the seaside town of Asbury Park, which at the time had a population of nearly 12,000 people. It was a quaint burg that had been founded in the 1870s by a fervent Methodist named James Bradley, who had visions of a moral utopia in mind. That's why the town had been founded dry, meaning without liquor. The irony is it was never really dry. As much as he, it certainly was prohibited, but, you know, they had beer being uh, sold out. You had to go into a pharmacy and ask for seafoam, and that would be beer. And there was another code for ale or whiskey or whatever it was. Um, there were people in carts going up and down streets, and James Bradley would sometimes go on the street and chase them down himself and say, get out of here. But you could get booze anywhere. Bradley developed the spot as a Christian resort community. Full-time residents were few, but summertime drew thousands of visitors to its hotels, parks, and boardwalks. Asbury Park was created as this resort town, but what happened was Bradley found out he needed some workers. You know, you needed hotel hands, you needed uh, people to clean the cities and all that. Plenty of people drawn to the town were honest, hardworking folk, but it drew its share of society's fringe element, too, so crime could be a problem. By 1910, dreams of a booze-free utopia had been abandoned, and Williams spent a fair chunk of his days drinking whiskey at a tavern run by William Griffin Jr. The pub's newspaper ads promised all the best brands of wines and liquors. Williams didn't need the best. He just needed as much as his meager wages would buy him. He lived in a boarding house in the same town and walked where he needed to go. Pretty much everyone knew him. One little boy told his mom a story about Williams. The boy had a toad, and Williams spotted him. He asked the boy what he was planning to do with the toad, and the boy said he meant to kill it. Williams said, no, don't do that. The boy asked why. Because that would be cruel, Williams said. The boy thought for a minute and then let the toad hop away. That's the Thomas William most in Asbury Park knew. The Smith family was fairly new to town, having moved the previous year from Brooklyn. They left behind the tenements they had called home and searched for a better life, a safer life, along the Jersey Shore. It was parents Peter and Nora, who was pregnant, as well as the couple's two children, Marie and five-year-old Thomas. A younger brother had died at just 18 months. Marie had been the kind of kid who rarely got in trouble. Though her parents were pretty rough around the edges, Her father later testified that he had never even spanked his daughter. She'd never done anything to warrant it, he said. This is Michael J. Bellow, Marie's nephew, speaking in a documentary sent to me by the Asbury Park Historical Society. Marie was a real good student. She was pretty, blonde, shy, somewhat frail, and um, uh, just a good overall child. November 9th. 1910 started like any other day, except that Peter noticed his little girl was extra chipper. She was usually pretty happy anyway, but somehow she seemed extra bubbly this morning. Marie kissed her mother goodbye, placed her hand in that of her younger brother, and together they walked to the Bradley School at the corner of 3rd Avenue and Pine Street. Arriving at the school, Marie dropped her brother Thomas off at the kindergarten and then went on to her own class. This is from a documentary called Murder at Asbury Park by JS Productions. At 10.30, Marie's class was dismissed. 
She would then hurry home to get her father's lunch and take it to him at the rendering plant as she did each day. On that cold November afternoon, Marie would never return home. When Marie didn't come home from lunch, her mother Nora didn't worry. She figured the girl's school teacher must have held the class over for some reason. But when Marie didn't come home after school either, Nora knew something was terribly wrong. She went to the schoolyard and watched as the kids streamed out of the building, searching the crowd for her firstborn. Thomas was released, but there was no Marie. And the, the parents started becoming upset about it, and they, they, they called the local police. And so a search uh, ensued. Not only the police, but the school students, her, you know, her, her classmates, searched the whole area many, many, many times all over. There's a little wood in the area. Searched that, and so she, they couldn't find her. This is Peter Lucia, who describes himself as an amateur historian and who a few years back uncovered a treasure trove of documents related to this case. I mean, we're talking daily reports from detectives outlining every twist and turn of the investigation. Those reports were used to help Tresniowski flesh out his book. At first, everyone searching for Marie tried to stay calm. Asbury Park was too small for any real danger. Marie and Thomas were safe to walk to school every single day, as were dozens of other kids from their neighborhood. The Smiths specifically moved to the small town because it was so safe. Marie's parents waited all night. Nora couldn't sleep at all. She tried, but she could only alternate between pacing and weeping. While the parents agonized, an Asbury Press reporter named Alvin Cliver was investigating. Clyber was uh, uh, this fascinating kind of guy, just this um, five foot one guy who was a, a ball of energy. And he was this sort of reporter who um, started at Asbury Park Press as just, uh, you know, a, a cub reporter. And uh, was it ended up being the first guy there to actually use a typewriter because the old reporters didn't dare get near a typewriter, which was a new invention. Cliver took ownership of the missing girl story and followed up on one of Nora's thoughts. Maybe Marie missed her old home in Brooklyn. So Cliver called the Smith's relatives in Brooklyn to see if the girl had shown up at one of their houses. No luck. Next, Cliver started searching for Marie. As he searched, he ran into Thomas Williams, who helped him look for any sign of the girl. Still no luck, but Cliver started to wonder, where had Thomas Williams been when Marie went missing? He asked Williams a few questions, but wasn't satisfied with the answers. The next morning, the police started searching along the 10-minute route Marie walked every day going to and from school. It wasn't a long walk, less than a mile, and there were witnesses that could place Marie at various spots along the way. After school dismissed at 10.30 a.m. for lunch, Marie hurried on her brown coat and skating cap and speedily walked up 3rd Avenue. A schoolmate named Albert Foster was behind her until she turned onto Whitesville Road. Albert ran inside his own house, but noticed Marie dart past a flower shop owned by Max Krushka. There, Marie hesitated a moment, and then recrossed the street as though doubling back to the florist. After that, Albert lost sight of her. Marie was still at the intersection of 3rd and Whitesville when a woman named Emma Davison spotted her heading her way. Davison told police she had noticed Marie because the girl was singing as she walked. Before Marie reached her, Davison turned and went down Whitesville, the girl behind her a few paces. 
Suddenly, a fox terrier bolted from Krushka's flower shop and began chasing and barking at Davison, who swatted the dog away. Just as Albert had seen, Davison noticed Marie had gotten close to her house, but then doubled back. Unlike Albert, Davison thought she saw why. A man was standing in the florist's yard, and he called out. Davison couldn't hear what he said, so she didn't know if he'd called for the dog or for Marie, but regardless... Marie was walking toward him. As a news report said, from that moment, Marie Smith disappeared as completely as though the earth had opened up and swallowed her. Police, desperate to solve Marie Smith's disappearance, centered their search within a five-mile radius of Krushka's nursery and were soon joined by members of the National Guard, the County Sheriff's Department, school officials, classmates, and hundreds of others. Peter Smith, the girl's father, was determined to chase down every possibility, every rumor. My grandfather thought that possibly she was hit by a car and taken to a far distant hospital. Uh, there were some rumors of some gypsies in the neighborhood that could have uh, you know, captured her and took her away. Grandma ran right up to school. And she spent that day and half of the next day just waiting and hoping that Marie would come back in total disbelief. And Grandpa just went walking through the woods all day long into the night using a lantern to follow his way. Day after day turned up nothing. Finally, on Sunday, a man named William Benson, who had once been a partner of Krushka the florist, made the horrible discovery not 300 feet from the flower shop where she'd last been seen. It took several days before she appeared. One of the mysteries of the case is why it took so long to find her, because she was in a pretty obvious spot in the woods, and people who were near that spot said that, gee, if if she was there when I was there, I would have seen her, you know? This led to speculation that maybe Marie had been killed somewhere else, but dumped in the woods days later. Naturally, Krushka was questioned. Max Krushka was a master florist, and he had several greenhouses on his property, and, uh, you know, was known to have problems with his wife, had been arrested for possibly raping his daughter, but nobody paid much attention to it. He just, you know, he had a a flower shop in town. If he'd been accused of attacking a neighbor's kid, maybe they would have cared. But a man in this era assaulting his own daughter? No problem. Krushka was interrogated by detectives, but had as airtight an alibi as one could have. Neither he nor his wife were even in town. They'd left on separate trips and had witnesses corroborating their whereabouts. And that only left an employee named Frank Heidemann at the nursery. Davison recognized Heidemann as the guy she'd seen in Krushka's yard, so police questioned him, too. But he said that while he'd seen Davison, he hadn't seen any little girl. He was fond of children, and she would have been short and easy to miss in a yard lined with hedges. Besides, he had lunch with Mrs. Jackson, Marie's great-aunt, not an hour after the girl disappeared. Investigators found nothing that connected Heidemann to Marie's death. Peter Smith's boss was a man named Randolph Miller, and he immediately got active in the investigation— He not only searched for Marie, but he put up money for a reward and was the first to suggest the police hire an outside detective agency to help find the girl's killer. I mean, his reason was simple, he told reporters. He had a daughter near Marie's age, and he couldn't imagine the anguish the parents were enduring. 
He wanted to help in any way he could. The day after Marie's body was discovered, Thomas Williams seemed to vanish. Miller and Cliver, the local reporter, hooked up to search for the man, but they couldn't find him anywhere. I don't know if he did that for fear, out of fear that he was going to be a suspect in this, but that even made him more of a suspect in Cliver's mind. Williams turned up after a few days, but by then, Cliver's mind was made up, and the newspaper stories reflected it. Early on, just hammering down on one suspect on racial grounds, and it's just, you know, uh, a breathless prose about this Negro and what he, what he looked like, what he acted like. And you could see that the media does play a role in shaping community opinion. Certainly in that small community, they hung on that newspaper. And uh, so Cliver did play a big role in it. He kind of got the community into a, a froth about it. Miller, Smith's boss, wasn't as convinced, but he was certain the local police were way over their heads with this investigation. The police chief seemed on board with Williams being the killer, but the county sheriff wasn't so sure. Because Asbury Park police weren't well-versed in murder investigations, the sheriff had offered up some of his men to help. He agreed Williams might be their guy, but he also agreed with Miller that investigators needed to keep their minds open. Miller convinced the sheriff to hire the Burns Detective Agency, considered one of the premier investigatory outfits in the country. The sheriff agreed, and agency boss William Burns sent one of his top guys, Raymond Campbell Schindler. Ray Schindler had started his career as a salesman. He was especially successful at going door-to-door selling typewriters, those cutting-edge machines that made Cliver the reporter stand out in his newsroom. It wasn't the sales part of the job Schindler loved. It really was the people part. He found it fascinating how different approaches worked on different personalities, and he prided himself on being able to accurately predict a personality after only a few minutes of conversation. Schindler had first entered private detective work unwittingly. After the San Francisco earthquake of 1906, he found a job supposedly documenting the extent of the damage, you know, for history. Soon after he started the gig, he realized he hadn't been hired as a documentarian. He'd been hired as a detective working for an insurance company that was trying to make sure it squirmed out of paying as many home policy claims as possible. Schindler realized, hell, I'm actually good at this job. And he ended up joining the Burns Agency. When he was sent to Asbury Park in 1910, he was regarded as an excellent detective, though he was still learning the ropes. But Schindler was really the top man. He was the manager of the agency. This was his first murder case. He had a lot on his shoulders here. So he comes down to Asbury Park to scrutinize the terrain with one other agent, Charles Scholl. Scholl and Schindler ignored the work that had already been done by local investigators and started completely from scratch. They interviewed everybody. After the first go-round, they felt like there were six viable suspects, and Williams was one of them. After another round, they narrowed the list to the two most likely, Williams and Frank Heidemann, the new guy working at Krushka's nursery. The local prosecutor presented evidence at an inquest meant to both officially declare Marie's death a murder and also, he had hoped, to pinpoint which of the two suspects would be charged. Prosecutor John Applegate was firmly in the Williams did it camp and he did little to hide it. Even still, the inquest jury didn't go as he'd expected. 
The jury found that Marie had been murdered, but they determined the culprit was persons unknown. Meanwhile, Williams was kept in jail. He hadn't been charged, but in 1910, there weren't the same rules as there are today. I mean, if you're arrested nowadays, you either have to be charged or released from custody within 72 hours in most states. Williams was being held as a quote-unquote material witness. He first was taken to the local jail in Monmouth County. The townsfolk were really up in arms about this, you know. And rightfully so. Marie Smith's slaying was horrifying. She was an innocent girl last seen feet from her home in a safe town. Her parents clearly loved her. One wire story described Marie's pregnant mother, Nora, forcing her way to see the dead girl when her body was found. It read, quote, Fainting and half in convulsions, she was carried into the house, and there is grave fear that she will die, and with her, the life she was soon to have brought into the world, end quote. That same story, printed November 14, 1910, in the Baltimore Sun, included an inflammatory subhead that read, Too many Negroes. It laments that the hotels and other resort businesses were drawing blacks from elsewhere looking for jobs. Another front-page headline made clear who its editors thought was the killer, referring to Marie as a, quote, Negro's victim, end quote. Is it any wonder that a mob encircled the jail where Williams was held? This case, taking place toward the end of 1910, isn't peak lynching time in America. That was 1892, if we're going by hard numbers. But they were by no means relics of the past, either. In 1910, there were 76 lynchings in this country, most of them in the South. This was New Jersey, but its record wasn't spotless, either. In 1886, a man known as Mingo Jack was lynched after falsely being accused of raping a white woman. I mention that because some members of the mob that steadily surrounded Williams in his cell were chanting, Mingo Jack, Mingo Jack as they approached. Far too often, sheriffs were complicit with mobs like these. But this sheriff took his job seriously. If a prisoner had died by mob justice on his watch, he would have considered it a personal failing. As such, he sneaked Williams out of Monmouth County and had him held some 15 miles away in Freehold. And there, Williams stayed day after day after day, as investigators tried to come up with some physical evidence to crack the case. As police officers and sheriff's deputies searched for answers in Marie Smith's murder, Detective Ray Schindler started doing some digging of his own. But try as he might, when it came to physical evidence, he came up dry too. He decided that the only way this case would be solved is by somehow getting a confession out of the killer, thereby roping him. That's why Alex Tresniowski's new book about the case is called The Rope. The Rope is it was another detective that basically, you know, Schindler worked through to pursue this guy. You know, he Schindler wasn't on the ground with them, but he was telling the rope what to do, when to do it. It was all a mousetrap, you know, that they were building for this guy. Getting confessions is, of course, tricky business. But Schindler put together some schemes that would almost certainly not go over well today. First, he sent a stooge into Williams' jail to chat him up, hoping to discern how much Williams really knew about the crime. Williams told the fake jailmate that he knew nothing at all. 
and he asked if the guy's lawyer might be willing to represent him too. Schindler went into the jail pretending to be that lawyer and walked away doubtful that Williams was the killer. Schindler and Scholl also interrogated their other suspect frontrunner, Frank Heidemann. Heidemann insisted he was innocent, but Schindler noticed some inconsistencies in his story. For starters, Heidemann claimed he had only recently come to the country, but Schindler knew that he'd actually been in the country for four years, living in New York before answering a Help Wanted ad posted by Max Krushka in a newspaper. Also, Schindler asked Heidemann about any girlfriends, and Heidemann acted like he had no interest in women at all, which didn't quite jibe with the fact that he had risque photos hanging in his rented room. Then there was the way Heidemann's lower lip trembled when Schindler talked about Marie's battered little body. And finally, there was a damning allegation made by a different neighborhood girl named Grace. Grace, who at age seven was about the age Marie looked to be, said that Heidemann tried to lure her to his place for candy, making a point to tell her not to bring her brothers along. He'd done that just days before the murder. After the questioning, Schindler decided Heidemann was hiding something. The detective started playing mind games. He had one of his colleagues hide outside of Heidemann's window late at night while everyone else was asleep and pester the Kushka's dog by throwing rocks. The dog would bark and wake up the whole house. Schindler's goal was to rattle Heidemann and see what he did about it. They knew he was probably going to leave and go back to New York. Schindler's operative continued the ruse night after night for days. The detectives noticed that while Krushka and others who had initially been bothered by the noise quickly learned to block it out, Heidemann paced in his room, unable to ignore it. Schindler chalked that up to a guilty conscience. After a few days, Heidemann quietly left Asbury Park. What he didn't know was that had been Schindler's hope all along. Once Heidemann settled into a boarding house in New York, Schindler sent a new detective after him. This guy, named Carl Neumeister, was born in Germany, just like Heidemann had been. The agency reports was that he was fluent in German, knew German history, had lived not far from the main suspect, and was good at entrapping people. A very calm and authoritative guy, and that's why he was chosen for this role. Neumeister's job was to become friends with Heidemann and earn his trust. To make sure Heidemann never suspected anything, he was under strict orders not to be the first to make conversation. So instead, Neumeister began frequenting a German restaurant that Heidemann regularly ate at. Heidemann one morning noticed Neumeister reading a German-language newspaper and, just as Schindler had hoped, began chatting up the fellow German. The two quickly became friends, or at least that's how it seemed, to Heidemann. Neumeister pretended he was in New York awaiting a lawyer to finalize an inheritance he was to receive, so he offered to pay for a lot of Heidemann's expenses. Pretty soon, the two were living together in a rented boarding house room. Neumeister quickly learned of Heidemann's fondness of young girls and wrote daily detailed reports about their activities for Schindler. Neumeister also pretended to be a criminal, figuring that if Heidemann had killed little Marie Smith, he'd be more likely to confess to a fellow killer than to a perfect angel. So Neumeister talked of heists he pulled and people he killed. And then, this is the completely mind-blowing part, 
He even staged a fake murder with the help of an actor. One night, while Heidemann and Neumeister were riding through a snow-covered park, an actor stepped out of the darkness and asked for a light. Neumeister gave him one, but also gave him some lip, prompting a fake scuffle during which Neumeister pulled out a gun loaded with blanks and shot the guy. Heidemann, thinking he had just watched his new friend kill a man, was completely spooked. Not because an innocent man was apparently dead, but because the police might figure out who did it, and Heidemann had already sneaked away from the Asbury Park police. He didn't want to get nailed in New York. So he and Neumeister began talking of fleeing together. Schindler, who'd been getting regular updates from his rope, Neumeister, decided to up the pressure a bit. Raymond Schindler, he's sort of certainly not passive because he pulls the punches at every uh, opportunity and comes up with, hey, let's let's fake a murder. Let's get a fake newspaper article. Let's do this to him. Why don't you try this? It's, it's Silence of the Lambs. You know, it is a cat and mouse game. Schindler managed to get three fake news stories published, two naming Heidemann as a suspect on the run in Marie's death, and another about the fake dead stranger in the snow. Heidemann saw these stories and said, man, we have got to go. Neumeister pretended to have another partner, however, who threw a wrench into things. The phantom partner supposedly was worried about Neumeister's new friend, insisting that they had to ditch Heidemann because he simply knew too much. He wasn't a criminal like they were, and as such, he could rat them out at any minute. You can't trust a guy like that. Heidemann eventually met someone pretending to be this mob boss type figure who was actually portrayed by Schindler's own brother. And Heidemann was desperate to convince his two new buddies that he wasn't a threat to them. He swore, I won't turn you in. The duo said, nope, we can't trust you. You've got everything on us and we've got nothing on you. Heidemann, who had so far denied any involvement in Marie Smith's death, began to crack. I mean, he really did not want these guys to leave the city without him, partly because Neumeister was basically his only friend, but also because Neumeister had money and Heidemann was living on fumes. So, more than two months after meeting this detective pretending to be his friend, Heidemann finally confessed. I'm not an angel either, he said. That girl that was killed in Asbury Park? Yeah, I did that. Neumeister played it cool, but alerted Schindler as soon as he could. He also teased out as many details from Heidemann as he could. Then he arranged for Schindler to be in a hotel room next to theirs when he convinced Heidemann to tell the story again. Schindler had his ear pressed to the shared wall and furiously took notes. Meanwhile, Thomas Williams still languished in jail. The Asbury Park police and prosecutor were still so sure of Williams' guilt that they needed firsthand convincing it was someone else. So Neumeister managed to get Heidemann to tell the story of Marie's death a third time. This time, Randolph Miller, Marie's father's boss, the one who suggested hiring Schindler in the first place, was listening. After months of dogged legwork, Schindler and his crew got Heidemann to confess not just once, not twice. He ended up getting the guy to confess fully 11 times. <laughs> Heidemann saw his buddy Neumeister walk into his holding cell with Detective Schindler and suddenly realized he'd been duped. He fell into a blubbering heap. He had entrusted Neumeister with his darkest secrets. He didn't even try to fight the charges. 
he confessed again in writing and was convicted of first-degree murder. He explained that he had spotted Marie the morning she disappeared as she was walking home. He called over to her and asked if she'd like to bring some plant cuttings home to her father, and Marie said she did. So Heidemann led the little girl, who was so trusting she held his hand into the woods. He sexually assaulted her as she sobbed. When he was finished, he tied her skating cap and blue hair ribbon around her throat to strangle her, but then switched gears. He reached into his pocket, grabbed a hammer that he'd been using for work, and smashed her skull in two blows. He left her body in the woods, where falling leaves made her brown coat blend in well enough with her surroundings that she was overlooked by search parties for four long days. Schindler was heralded as a real-life Sherlock Holmes. Though, make no mistake, this wasn't a one-man party. Without Carl Neumeister posing as Heidemann's friend for more than two months, there would have been no confession. The suspect they were chasing in New York City was, was a, a pervert. He liked young girls. He talked about young girls all the time. So well, poor Neumeister had to play along and, and sort of share those beliefs. He started putting together a list of all the sexually deviant things and would condemn him in the report, say, this guy is worse than the devil. You know, we've got to get this guy off the street. But um, he did subsume himself into a low life, basically, for, for a couple of months. And had he not done that, you know, he wouldn't have gained what turned out to be the absolute 100% trust of this guy. Heidemann was sentenced to death. It took Schindler and Neumeister just over 70 days to nail the confession they wanted. It took less than 30 days after the trial for Heidemann to be put to death in the electric chair for a crime that had almost led to an innocent man's lynching. Not only did Heidemann never apologize for Williams's near-death experience, but he had actually bragged to Neumeister about how the murder had been pinned on a black man. The case against Williams, meanwhile, had drawn the attention of the newly formed NAACP and ultimately went down in its annals as the third case the agency ever adopted. Here was yet another example in post-Reconstruction America of a black man accused of a crime and nearly lynched for it by a mob of white people unwilling to see the case through court. After the NAACP's lawyers demanded that prosecutors either release Williams or charge him, Williams was finally freed. The newspaper reporters, who had all but convicted him in print and used incendiary and racist language to describe him as a wild-eyed brute with no conscience, didn't even bother to ask him how he felt after Heidemann confessed. That includes Alvin Cliver, the journalist whose biased reporting nearly cost the man his life. After his release, Williams disappeared. There's no paper trail saying where he went or even when he died. His brief foray into the public eye had ended, and he became a nobody, just as he was before. And, Trzniowski thinks, probably how he preferred it. 
to research this absolutely mind-blowing case that for some reason hasn't been turned into a movie yet, I read an advanced copy of Alex Tresniowski's The Rope, a true story of murder, heroism, and the dawn of the NAACP, which was officially released in February. I also read Peter Lucia's Murder at Asbury Park, which includes tons of images and direct quotations from the actual day-to-day logs kept by the detectives in this case. Special thanks to both of those authors for letting me interview them for this episode. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This case was researched by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at centuriespod. And check out the Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. Mm-hmm.